Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Hello, my name is Mark Arlapage. And before we get on with the show, I wanted to share a quick little teaser from a new show launching soon at our new home, Gable Media. Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. We're in this tiny little village of our own technology and the rest of the world is just kind of accelerating away. So can we take some of the benefit of that technology that's been developed in these other sectors and like bring it back at AC so we're not in this cul-de-sac that we've created of our own tools. The biggest shock to most of our graduates once they go out in the world is, you know, you're working with others uh, through the process because that in school is something that they don't necessarily have to do unless you have a multidisciplinary studio, let's say. So look, we're gonna work on automating high quantity items. Yeah, there's a lot of bathrooms that get designed in the world. So we're, we're gonna focus on stuff like, can we automate fixture counts and keep people accountable to what's an IBC just from the get go? You know, trying to automate the stuff that is annoying, like life safety compliance, so the architects can focus more on on design solutions. It's the Troxel Podcast, broadcasting from Gable Media. Yes, the Troxel Podcast. It's coming soon to Gable Media. Learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 327, Managing Client Expectations Leads to Architecture Practice Success with Residential Architect 
Joseph Spearer. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, Gusto, Easy Online Payroll, Benefits, and HR built for modern small businesses like ours. FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. And RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM specifications, and much more at RCAT.com. Joseph Spearer, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. It's, it's great to have you here. Uh, as the Southern California coastal cities have become increasingly popular for new companies and new residents, Joseph Spearer is fast becoming the go-to architect. It is for these homeowners and investors that Joe is creating some of the most striking Southern California residences from urban modern to coastal contemporary. Joe received his on-the-job training at Los Angeles and Redondo Beach architecture firms before opening up his own practice in the South Bay. He approaches each project thoughtfully and creatively, bringing out the best in both ground-up construction and adaptive reuse. Throughout the South Bay, Spearer has developed a reputation for harmoniously blending indoor and outdoor spaces and making best use of the spectacular views for which the area is known. So I'm looking forward to this conversation, Joseph. Thank you very much for, for joining me. Oh, thank you so much, Mark, for having me. I appreciate it. I'm excited. Let's, uh, let's start off where we start off at each episode, uh, your origin story. I'd love for you to go back to where you discovered architecture, what inspired you to become an architect, and give us the story of how you got to where you are now. Well, sure. So, you know, as a, uh, as a kid, I was always interested in... I was always interested in architecture. I was fortunate in that my family traveled quite a bit when I was a kid. We went all across the world to different countries in uh, Europe and South America and the Middle East and all over the place. And it was a great experience for me from an architectural perspective. You know, I, I was interested in, of course, the culture and that kind of blended straight into architecture early on. And, you know, I just loved it. So, but, you know, I, I didn't actually consider architecture as a profession at that point because I didn't really know any architects. I, I had never really met an architect. Um, and so I, I didn't have that exposure that I needed to kind of head in that direction. You know, my, my father is a lawyer and he, you know, he was always talking about how amazing law is, and and he came home with these great stories about how uh, law was. Uh, you know, he, he would have these great battles in court, and it would be very exciting, and and you know that he glorified it a little bit, and it sounded it that sounded amazing to me. So I actually headed towards being an attorney for the better part of my childhood, and then. You know, come senior year in high school and freshman year in college, I that that only then did I start to realize, you know, maybe law isn't for me. Maybe I should head into uh, something different. And I really had no idea what to head into. Again, I didn't know any architects, so it didn't even occur to me to head in that direction. So I took an aptitude test. Uh, it's, it was a two-day kind of intense test where. Uh, you know, I they asked a million different kinds of questions and and uh, came up with where my strengths and weaknesses were, 
And when the results came back, they basically pointed, um, you know, it basically said you, you should not be an attorney. It said there's, <laughs> there, there's, <laughs> there's zero, zero part of you that would be good at it or that would enjoy it. Um, it, it, but it did point towards art. It pointed towards um, engineering. And then, of course, it pointed towards architecture. And I had never, again, to that point, it had never even occurred to me um, you know, that I could be an architect. So I started looking into it and I started interviewing different architects, taking them to lunch and asking them about the profession and then, you know, taking a few classes um, in college. And I fell in love with it. And then I never looked back and I joined the architecture program at University of Arizona um, my second year. Uh, so I began my first year of the five-year program uh, in my second year of college. Uh, and then, you know, the rest is history. I, uh, I loved it from then on out. That's, that's super interesting. Was there something, when you went into law, was there something in the back of your mind that maybe this isn't the right thing? Oh, yeah. No, there was something nagging from the very beginning. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was the fact that, you know, some of the things that, uh, you know, my dad said that he loved, I just looked at in yeah. with disdain. I, I, couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't stand them. And, and I, sh- I should have I kind of drawn the conclusion more quickly. But, you know, I had been kind of uh, bathed in it since right. I was young. So it was very hard to change direction once I was heading, heading there so, so strongly. Yeah, I'm sure. And that was actually one of my questions is, is, was it difficult to make that decision? Was there, and how did your, your dad feel about that? This, he so, was probably so proud of believe the fact. It, that, yeah, go ahead. It, believe it or not, he, he actually never wanted me to be a lawyer. That was all so he me. was really, that was all, <laughs> he, he was relieved because I don't think he thought that I would make a very good attorney either. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so when he, you know, when, when I kind of announced that I was going to be taking this aptitude test and starting to look into something that maybe matched what I wanted a bit more, he was very supportive. He, he wanted it, um, you know, he wanted it uh, badly for me. He wanted um, he wanted me to find something that was as enjoyable as what he found for himself. Yeah, yeah. Were you creative as a kid? Did you sort of have those tendencies? Yeah. So you know, I always was kind of into I was I was into uh, you know kind of engineering things as a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, tinkering around with things and Legos and. You know, I loved art. You know, any any chance that I could, you know, find to sculpt to sculpt in an art class or, uh, you know, draw or paint, I I always jumped at and I loved it. And you know, I even you know I won an art competition in second grade. And uh, you know, so I I did I did have that. And you know, it was like these little little signs that I should have seen uh, <laughs> as a, as a kid. Yeah. Um, that would have would have helped me head in that direction. Yeah, I can un- you know, I can. I was going to say I can understand that. I can relate to that because I I decided to become an architect when I was 10 and I just locked in to becoming an architect. Right. And and you probably did something similar that, oh, I'm just going to be an attorney and you just lock into that and you just put your blinders on and focus on that goal. And for right. me, it worked out because I, you know, I love what I do, but I could, I could, I could really understand that, you know, if I got to uh, freshman in college and I hated architecture, I would have had no sure. alternative cause, because it was my only focus. Well, sure. And, and, you know, um, 
you know, I, and, and what's interesting is, is most of in, in architecture school, most of my competition, most of the people who were around me, who were also, you know, creating these beautiful designs, um, you know, they, they had been practicing since they were kids, you know, they had been designing floor plans and, uh, thinking, thinking of how they were going to create structures from the time they were young. And so I had, I had a lot of catch up to do, which, yeah. um, uh, which, you know, that was, it was, it was fun. I, I, I jumped into it and, and loved it. I mean, as soon as I started building my first architectural models, you know, I, I knew this is, this yeah. is what I want to be doing. Oh, that's great. That's life. a great story. Uh, so our uh, university of Arizona, what did you do after you graduated? So after I graduated, I worked for, well, actually, during, during school, I actually worked for a few firms in Arizona, um, some commercial firms. And then after school, when I graduated, I worked for a few um, high-end single-family residential architecture firms and then one multifamily and commercial architecture firm. I worked for Landry Design Group up in uh, Los Angeles, and I worked for uh, KAA. I did an internship there, and then um, I worked for uh, John Cotton uh, up in Culver City, um, who specialized in multifamily and commercial, and that's where I got some some great technical experience as well. Um, so that's what I did, and you know, uh, I always knew that I wanted to open up a practice. Um, in fact, before I was going to be an architect, I was going to open up a law practice. But once I switched, I was going to open up an architecture practice. Yeah. And so everything that I did was kind of leading towards that end. So I wanted as much good, varied experience as I could that would enable me to open up a firm with as much ease as I, you know, as possible. So, um, so that's, that's what my, my end goal was. When did you launch the firm? I started the firm in 2009, um, which I know is a great time to start a firm, uh, <laughs> right, right after that recession hit there. But, you know, um, I, I was, I was uh, really, I was really kind of bent on starting that firm right away. You know, I, uh, I got my license in 2009, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. And so. I didn't actually quit my job. I, I told my my then boss, I said, um, you know, I'm going to start networking so I can try and start my own practice. And he said, fine, but you seem, it's, what are you, crazy? <laughs> Now's not the time. to Now's the time to hang on to your job. And I said, I know, but I, I have to go try anyway. So I went and started, um, you know, uh, talking to as many people as I possibly could. And um, you know, started to expand my network and and tried to get a few little little projects started, uh, and and th you know that's that's how I kind of started it. In hindsight, do you think that starting it in two thousand nine was actually a um, you know a liability, or do you sort of look at it now with the fact that there was sort of low pressure because there was so few few projects out there that. It gave you some time to sort of figure it all out. Do you do did that happen, or was it sort of really difficult? You know what? I actually think it was a huge advantage because yeah. I had, you know, unlike all the architects that were established, I had zero overhead. Yeah. You know, I I was working out of my apartment, and my only overhead was the computer that I owned. I mean, I literally had nothing else. I had a little bit, you know, saved up from my 
um, from my previous jobs. Again, I always knew I was going to need to support myself for a little bit while I got things going. So, um, you know, I saved up a little bit and, and, uh, then I, I, I just went for it, you know, and, and I had my first part-time employee, uh, working at my kitchen table, um, next to my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, you know, while she was, um, cooking herself breakfast, I just have this memory <laughs> in my mind. She's cooking herself breakfast and my part-time employees sitting at, at our kitchen table working on their laptop. Uh, and, um, you know, we're, we're trying to get work done in this kind of, uh, <laughs> this, this, uh, you know, this kind of early startup atmosphere. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, it, it was like that for a few months. We, you know, I didn't really get a place until, um, you know, I had been really working for about six months. And when I did get a place, I got it, you know, in, in, in an area which had very low rent. So, you know, I could afford it back then. And I, you know, I, re the reality is, is when I first started, I was just cheaper than everyone else because I could be. So I started out a lot less expensive. Um, and then uh, over time, we, you know, as I kind of developed a reputation and, uh, you know, earned, earned a few gray hairs, uh, you know, I, um, that's when I started raising our prices and, and, um, you know, kind of developing the business into, into kind of a, a real architectural practice. Early on in your story, and then you, you mentioned it again, when you started your practice, you started talking about how you spoke to other people that you set up meetings and had conversations and started building your network. You did that when you decided to become an architect. And then you mentioned it again, when you started, you know, you, when you decided you wanted to start your practice, how important was that practice of, of meeting people and networking and building your relationships? That was honestly the only important thing, right? I mean, at that point, I, I kind of knew how to be an architect, right? You know, I, I had learned that in school and I had learned that in, um, in practice. I mean, I, I was still young, so I wasn't perfect yet. And, but, you know, I, I at least had a handle on that piece. But what I didn't have a handle on was how do I get work in front of me to work on, right? Bringing in new work, I think, is kind of the, the hardest I'd say that's that's one of the hardest things that any business person um, needs to do, and, and it's the most important thing as well. And so, you know, I found um, I found myself just trying everything I could. One of the early methods that I had for bringing in business was taking um, well-established architects to lunch and asking them for overflow business. So. Yeah. You know, I things that they would turn down. I, I ended up taking a hundred architects to lunch, um, and you know, or more. I mean, it, it must have been more than that. And just kind of saying, hey, you know, I I know that you're you turn down work, and if you would want to turn it down and send it my way, I would appreciate that. And, and you know, uh, you know, again, it was it was 2009, 2010 when I was doing that. So not a lot was being turned down, but it still had an effect and it still had, um, you know, enough to kind of keep me busy. And then beyond that, just kind of meeting lots of business people. You know, I, I joined lots of different networking groups, chambers of commerce, um, uh, uh, you know, networking groups that were um, kind of 
specific to real estate. Um, I tried my best to talk to as many realtors as I could. Uh, and you know, that, that was kind of the way that I, I just started, um, I, I started the business. And what I found is I ended up spending at least half my time out of the office, just talking to people, just trying to talk, talk to people. Um, so uh, that is one, one of the surprises I found early on is, is there's not as much architecture in starting a practice <laughs> right? as you would think that there would be. Yeah. Um, I think that's but, often uh, the case. I think architects, because we're not taught architecture in architecture school, we're not really exposed to how to run a business that many of us want to start our practice. We have this idea from the beginning that we want to have our own practice. We see other architects doing it. And you don't realize how much you don't know until you jump and you do it. And then you start discovering all these things that, that you need to learn. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So more than 10 years later today, um, you've built a practice, high-end residential architecture. Um, how are you getting work today? Are you, are you still doing that networking and, and relationship building? Yes, but it's different, right? So I'm no longer, I still keep in touch with many of the architects that I developed relationships with because, you know, we can help each other in, in lots of different ways, right? But I no longer network with architects for business. Um, now my focus is on real estate professionals and, um, you know, places, places where I can try and find people with connections to higher network net, net worth people um, since we do that at high-end single-family residential so you know what, what I find myself doing now is speaking to real estate offices um, I at this point I speak at probably um, three or four a month um, if I can and I uh, you know, I, I talk about different things that are helpful to them. So, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, like just last week I spoke to 120 realtors about the new accessory dwelling unit laws and what to expect from those. And uh, they found that very valuable. And then, you know, the week before I spoke about um, common misconceptions with design and construction. Um, and, you know, I, I find that they just kind of keep me in their Rolodex, and yeah. when they when they need an architect, then they they um, then they reach out at that point. So, um, but uh, so so I th I find that that's that's a good place to to kind of drum up business. Yeah, it's a great but strategy. Honest, but honestly, you know, the the best way at this point is just impressing past clients and and making it so that they are so excited about the product and the service that they're receiving that they, they can't help but um, tell all their friends. And I mean, at this point, that's probably the biggest thing that's driving the, the ship forward. Yeah, your, your next best client comes from your current best client. Exactly. So, exactly. so what are you doing to impress those clients? Well, so we are, we're doing I guess everything we can, right? So, you know, basically, um, you know, after, I think er, the way that we presented to clients has changed over the years, right? When I first started, we presented in 
two dimensions only, right? We do some hand sketching. We did some uh, some exterior elevations, um, and of course floor plans, and maybe we'd color a site plan or something, you know, like that. But but that was probably about it. That was probably about all we could afford to do at the moment because we couldn't spend as much time because we weren't making as much money back then, right? But as we kind of developed our uh, skills and developed our clientele uh, over the years, we have started to do a great deal more. So now what we're doing is we are doing a good deal of three-dimensional work. So we use Revit um, to essentially build everything uh, in the computer from ground up. We use that for everything from our construction documents to beginning to think about our presentations. We use a, a software called Enscape to present to our clients. So we'll take that three-dimensional Revit model and we will uh, turn it into a video game essentially and make it so that our clients can walk through in three dimensions through their um, through their project and look at every possible angle we use virtual reality so we actually put the virtual reality goggles on our clients so that they can experience their home in 3d and all that detail that we're putting into the drawings and you know feel how high their their um, ca their upper cabinetry is going to be um, by kind of standing in the room and, and feeling it in 3d um, and then we also we print three-dimensional models from that same 3d computer model um, which takes a series of you know it takes probably a week to print a good 3d model but you know our clients kind of take that home and they look at it and they imagine themselves in the space and take the roof off and look at the floor plan and um, you know they uh, they find a good deal of value in that kind of thing so that, I mean that's one of the ways that we kind of impress our, our or that we you know we attempt to impress our clients but I think I think honestly one of the most important things is is the service aspect and making sure that we're attentive and making sure that we're on it from a um, uh, from a responsiveness standpoint and you know we, I want to answer their their phone calls whenever I can in fact I just answered a text for one of my clients at 11:30 last night um, who uh, wasn't going to be able to sleep unless they had a, an answer to their question <laughs> um, you know I, I, I never thought that there would be such thing as an architectural emergency but apparently there are architectural emergencies so uh, you know and, and just being available and and uh, you know we, we now send out weekly emails with updates uh, whether we have an update or not because you know there there are long periods of time where you know, we're just waiting for the city and our clients get antsy because they wonder what's happening with their project. So yeah. we're the ones who kind of reach out to them and say, nothing's happening. We're still waiting. We expect it at this time. And, you know, it gives them that peace of mind and, and that feeling of ease. And then we also pay more attention during construction than we did at the very beginning. We want to make sure that we are, um, we want to make sure that we're putting together uh we want to make sure that we're we're putting together the actual 
we want to make sure that the building is getting built the way that we have planned for it. So, um, you know, they, they kind of get our, uh, our attention throughout the entire process of uh, designing and building the building. Week after week, episode after episode, you hear me talk about some great companies who provide outstanding products and services to help us small firm architects build better businesses. Gusto, FreshBooks, and RCAT have been dedicated supporters of the Entree Architect community and this podcast for years. Every episode, I ask you to check them out and thank them for supporting us because with their support, we've been able to grow this podcast. And in turn, we've been able to grow the Entree Architect platform, serving the global community of small firm architects like you. So today, I want to stop and thank you the Entree Architect community for supporting them, our loyal platform sponsors. And I want to ask you to make an extra effort this week to connect with each sponsor, Gusto, FreshBooks, and RCAT. Using the links that I'll share in a minute, you can find their contact forms and thank them. I mean like literally thank them because as the economy shifts and slows, marketing budgets are shrinking. Companies are going to need to choose where they spend their marketing dollars. And we want them to spend them here with us supporting the Entree Architect community. So let me take a little bit of time here and share a little bit of information for each sponsor and the link for, for where you can connect and then pause this episode right now and connect with each sponsor. Gusto, FreshBooks, and RCAT. Small businesses across the country love running payroll with Gusto. Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use and you can add benefits and management tools to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal, it's modern, and let's face it, we all need some help with our payroll and taxes. Gusto is making it easy so we can focus on being architects. So give Gusto a try for free for three months. The link to give Gusto a try is entrearchitect.com slash Gusto. That's the link to connect and say thank you for supporting Entree Architect. Visit entrearchitect.com slash Gusto today. FreshBooks wants you to know that you're not alone. FreshBooks has been supporting small businesses and solopreneurs, and specifically, they've been supporting us here at Entree Architect Podcast for years. They know what it's like, how lonely it may be working from home. They know what it's like when times get tough. And they know that right now, as we all face this crisis together as a global community, we all need to do our part. So FreshBooks is responding and offering an unprecedented offer. Now, when you join FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software, you will receive 60% off for six months. 60% off for six months. Just visit entrearchitect.com slash freshbooks, entrearchitect.com slash freshbooks and enter Entree Architect in the how did you hear about us section. Don't forget to do that. That's 60% off their regular price for six months. So visit entrearchitect.com slash freshbooks, sign up for that 60% off, then go find their contact form and thank FreshBooks for being such a long time loyal supporter of Entree Architect. That's entrearchitect.com slash freshbooks. 
As you and your team are working from home, are the logistics of putting together a project daunting when no one is in the same room? RCAT has a solution for you, and it's free. RCAT's Charette allows you to manage projects and specification documents online with multiple team members. Discuss products, configurations, outline specs, project photos, documents, and so much more all on one page, along with the ability to access product information, specifications, CAD, BIM, and the patented spec wizard from anywhere in the world. Charette can help your firm get more done, no matter where in the world you might be. You can even promote your firm's project when you're done. And like all of our cat solutions, it's completely free to use. So check it out right now at entrearchitect.com slash rcat. That's entrearchitect.com slash rcat. A-R-C-A-T. Entrearchitect.com slash rcat. And don't forget to thank rcat for the years and years of their support for the Entree Architect community. So thank you, the Entree Architect community, for supporting them our loyal platform sponsors, Gusto, FreshBooks, and RCAT. So in presentation, you're embracing technology with Enscape and Revit and VR and 3D printing. That's, that's I'm sure, differentiating you and your firm from other architects. You're doing the, the foundation of a good business by communicating and managing expectations, which I think a lot of people neglect. I think it's easy to, when things are sort of quiet and slow, to just let the client sort of sit there and wait while you can focus on other things. Um, but right. having that continuous conversation and communication uh, is is actually one of the most important pieces of a successful relationship with your client is to is to never let them get nervous so they always know what's happening, even when it's bad news, so they know what's happening. Um, are you leveraging technology for that as well? You've mentioned that you sent out an email, but are you using any other tools to sort of continue that management of expectations? You know what? On that front, we're pretty low tech. I mean, we do just use emails, but um, you know, I have uh, we have uh, n there are nine of us at our architecture firm, and everyone is char everyone has their own clients that they keep in touch with and we just have uh, we just have a rule every single Wednesday we send out our uh, our weekly email uh, rain or shine it, it happens and everyone just knows that that's what what needs to occur so um, and they're all custom it's not something that I can really automate because each one kind of deserves its own yeah. few minutes of thought um, so that it can really be kind of a newsy uh, update, so that so that they they really feel like they're being they're being talked to, and not you know okay it's Wednesday so I'm going to get another nothing update. It's really it's really something new and and it changes every time. So um, so that that part is low is low tech and it just requires uh, custom thought and attention. But I mean you're right. I think. Um, we can if if a client has reached out to us to say what's happening with my project right i feel like we failed yep. at that point and everybody in my office knows that it's a failure if our client reaches out to us and says what's happening with my project yeah and you've built that to be a system that that although that you're using low tech you know uh, you're writing custom emails and sending out emails 
you've built a system, whether it's documented or not, it's a, it's a, a, a consistent practice that you do week after week and everybody knows the rules and they know how to succeed at it and they are very aware of how it fails. And so that is exactly right. So you've built a system around that to make sure that those clients are being cared for in a very specific way. No, that's that's a very good point. I mean, you know, I find that 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 systems are the only thing that allows us to be the the size that we are at this point. You know, I mean, we're not a huge firm, but you know, even at nine people, without systems in place, it can become unwieldy. Um, you know, having weekly meetings with our team, having, um, you know, procedures and, and rules for how you go about taking care of certain tasks, uh, how our standards are set up. They, they all have to be set up with, um, with procedures and, you know, placing one foot after the other in, in the same manner that you did time and time before. With the focus that you put on early presentation work with Revit and Enscape and walkthroughs, um, does that take a lot of time? Is that something that is it, clearly it's worth the investment in time? But but are you also managing the expectations there? Because I'm sure that's not just a snap of the finger for that to happen. Clients are waiting for their projects to pr proceed and to progress. Um, how does the time involved in creating that? information sort of work out with managing those expectations of a client? Well, so I always give them the way, the way that I do that is I explain all the work that goes into this at the very beginning and almost everyone seems surprised at the beginning, but I'd rather surprise them when I tell them what they're going to, what they're going to, uh, see then I would surprise them when they're tapping their fingers saying why is this taking so long so the way I kind of mitigate that is by setting the meeting before we have done anything so you know basically it, it, once we kind of conduct our interview you know we start we start our process with kind of image review and with an interview and with going to their house and taking a bunch of pictures and chatting with them for maybe a, you know two meetings or so to kind of really get to know them and really understand who they are. And then at that meeting, before we kind of um, don't see them for uh, three weeks, we, we set that meeting three weeks from them from then and we explain you know what we will be presenting at that meeting. And you know they, they usually understand as long as they have, as long as they have that next uh, um, target to mm -hmm. look at, as long as they have that next target, they everyone seems fine. They seem happy and willing willing to wait. It's when they don't know how long it's going to take, and it's when they don't know when you're going to resurface. That's that's when they start to get shaky and upset. So, um, it, you know, as, as long as they have an end goal in mind and they know where they're headed, they, they seem okay. Yeah, I, I think that's so important in the work that we do because most of client, residential clients anyway, um, architectural services are often a once in a lifetime event. They have no idea of what to expect. They, right. they have some, some idea based on what they've gathered in magazines or HGTV, and all of that is false and wrong. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so they have this almost this, this um, 
unrealistic expectation. And so if we don't establish some expectations uh, ourselves, then those other expectations take the place of what we're, what we're doing. And so they're basing their expectations on what other people have told them to expect. But if you, uh, like you just described, explain to them what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, how long it takes to do it, and set the date so they have a deadline on when to expect it, they just assume, okay, well, that's the way this process works. We're happy to play along with that process because that's how Joe tells us the process works. That is so true. I mean, you know, I find that that expectations are um, are off almost every time when we start a project. Right. So, you know, you're right. HGTV does a lot of damage because when you know when when the when these shows are saying that you can um, you know you can add on to your house and you can you can take the roof off and and still have some surprises and. Uh, okay, now we have to redo the foundation, and and that whole thing costs you eight thousand dollars. Right, right. Um, it 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 sets it sets a precedent that's impossible to live by. Yeah, so, and you can go to Disney World, is, and when you get back from Disney World, it'll be a new house. That's exactly <laughs> right. Well, and and what I find is, you know, when when people are sitting in my office for the first time, and and that's their only experience. When I, you know, the first thing I have to do is dash all of their um, previous preconceived notions. I, you know, they come in and they say, "Oh, I hear construction is $150 a foot, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and um, an architect costs five dollars." And and you know, I, I basically have to say, "Well, you know, your construction budget, uh, you know, that might cover the architectural and structural fee, but you're you're going to have to now." think a bit bigger you know construction costs aren't 150 dollars a foot and in order to build anything right now you're looking at multiples of that so um and and a lot of them are very surprised at what construction costs are and you know they also you know you can't tell when you can't tell through a montage on hgtv how long the process takes right but the reality is that in order to get a permit, it you know, forgetting the design process, um, which you know should have its own time dedication, uh, just to get a permit, you're looking at anywhere from half a year to a year and a half, depending on what city you're you're trying to get uh, a permit in. So, um, you know, working working against that is tough. But what I find is if I do that at the beginning and set that up, a lot of times. You know, I I kill people's dreams and and they can't do anything. But but when it actually does work and when they actually um, are able to kind of reset their expectations and their budget and how they look at things, uh, it, it it turns out much better because you know they've they've had all of their disappointment that they're going to have before we even sign a contract. So I disappoint them at the very beginning with everything. I tell them everything that that is not true. I, I try and dash all their misconceptions. Is that is that first meeting? First time almost, you meet them? Yeah, usually yeah. it's the first meeting. It's usually it's the very first meeting at, when I do all of that. And, um, you know, uh, you know, I, I think I think a lot of what I find is, I, I you know, a lot of other architects seem to um, be hesitant to do that. Uh, and I, I hear that when they say, thank you so much for being honest with me. Yep. Um, and I, I, I asked them, did no one else tell you this? And they said, no, no one, no one gives me pricing or tells me how much construction costs or 
anything like that. But um, but people seem to appreciate it when I when I tell them what to expect, and uh, then they there's the there's an added level of trust there that um, that might not have been there otherwise. Yeah, and you also have a much better uh, base of clients because now the people who do proceed with you are your target. They are people yes. who expect to. Uh, perform at the level that you're going to perform and pay what you expect them to pay. And they've agreed to that by going forward. And so now you have a client base of happy clients because you're not spending money that they aren't really able to spend. And the ones who are disappointed and can't proceed, they are better off working with another firm that can provide some level of service for a client at that level. Yeah, no, that's very true. And, and, you know, it's also, um, you know, there's, there's also kind of an element of, uh, there's an element of, you know, you're right. There, there are different, there are different good fits for different architectural firms. Right. And I think a lot of times, um, when I, when I tell people what it costs to build it is to build in a certain way, right? right. It's because yep. they've seen pictures on our website or they've seen uh, our Instagram or, or they, they come with their own book of images. And when I say, you know, you, you, can't, you can't build that, I'm really saying you can't build that, right? Because you're right, you can still build production housing for $150 a foot and, and people are still doing that in certain parts of, um, the United States. And, and depending on, depending on what people are looking for, I think, uh, you know, the, the right, knowing what the right fit is at the beginning is huge. And telling, telling my clients that we're either the right fit or not the right fit at the very beginning, um, only, only helps. So try, trying to get something that we shouldn't get never serves us well. Yeah, and no one's happy at that point. It's a right. misery through the whole project for the architect and it's constant disappointment for the client. And, and you end up, it doesn't benefit anybody because they don't get what they want. You have a struggle. You don't get a good reference from them to continue on. Like you said in the beginning, your, your best references are coming from your happy clients. You're not going to have That's a happy exactly client right. if you've promised them something they can't afford. And so you got that it. starts day one at that very first meeting. Right, right. Very, very interesting. Uh, and what about, what about construction? During construction, how, how are you managing that expectation? Because that's really where uh, our relationships with clients can fall apart. You may have that great relationship up to the point of construction, but if you're not involved in the process of building the project in some way, um, it's very easy for you to lose all of that um, hard work that you've put in. You know that's that's so true, and and um, you know again early on, I used to, you know, be, because we were doing things less expensively, um, we tended to not do as much construction administration. But you're right. What I found is our relationship with the client would fall apart very slowly kind of one thing, one thing after another, we would get kind of thrown under the bus. Right. And, and, uh, the thing is, I don't blame the contractor at all for this because, you know, it, it's, it's, it's the, sometimes when the client's coming at you with, uh, knives coming out of their eyes because they're very angry about something, um, you know, the contractor can kind of look at it and say, well, you know, the, the plans weren't perfect. Right. And, 
um, it's an easy thing to say to take the heat off of themselves. And I, I don't blame them for it. I mean, yeah. look, I, I think that um, they're the ones now that have to preserve their relationship with the client and they want to do anything that's in their power to, uh, to do that. Um, I would prefer that they didn't do it, but you know, I also understand at the same time. But what I think happens when the architect is involved is the language changes a little bit, mm -hmm. right? Especially if the relationship between the contractor and the architect is is good and very positive. I think that the uh, I think that what ends up happening is the contractor, um, you know, they change the way they they say things, and instead of instead of well, first of all, they call the architect first when right. there's an issue, and they say, "Hey, we we have this thing. We think that there that there was an issue with the plans, but we're not sure. Can you help look into this, right?" And then, then we're able to kind of look into it and and come up with a solution that makes sense that doesn't make anyone look bad. That you know, it it it, it essentially turns it into something that is very. Um, uh, it it turns it turns it into something that's very positive for all three parties, right? For the client, architect, and contractor. So, um, and then everyone's friends at the end. At the end. So, but I, I think I think you're right. I think that um, without that, you can end up having uh, issues. And w one of the things that kind of drew that to my attention was, you know, I have a very close relationship with a, a contractor that I work with. And, you know, we see each other all the time and, and, you know, even he found himself when we weren't involved in an early project, he found himself saying, uh, uh, oh, well, you know, it's not on the plans. And he wasn't trying to blame uh, us. He was just trying to say, well, you know, we, we have to charge more because it wasn't there um, as opposed to, you know, again, calling us and saying, what can we do? And us coming up with a solution together because we weren't, we didn't really have a mechanism for that. But now we have a certain requirement for construction administration. So our clients have no choice. They have to have us there for a certain amount of time. We build that into our flat fee. And then the rest is hourly, but we really try and stress to them that they need us involved. And what we found is as we've kind of changed our clientele over the years, they've found more and more value in it. Um, and uh, they, they want to have us there. And um, even though it is an extra cost, they see that it does save them money in the long run and it makes things run smoothly and more quickly. So, um, you know, and, and you end up with a much better feeling at the end, uh, having us there, uh, making sure that that. Um, that uh, every that everyone is is fully informed and everyone understands these plans. Look, we're we're sp we spend fifteen hundred hours on a set of construction documents, and when a contractor gets a hold of them, I mean, maybe they've spent a hundred. I mean, maybe right, right maybe. <laughs> and and so they're still getting to know things that we may just know, you know, very easily. Uh, or we, we may, if we see them heading in some direction, we may, able to, we may be able to say, you know what, I don't know if we can do that. Let me look into that and, and we'll get back to you. And, and then it solves a bunch of problems that we wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. The, the idea of, of making it part of your process that it's required, um, is this perpetual um, uh, process for you and your clients that when you are in that process and they expect it, they end the project in a very uh, positive way. They're very happy. They become good referrals for you. 
and they become advocates for construction administration because they explain that to the people that they're talking to as references saying, oh, you have to have Joe on as a construction um, administrator because here's why. This is why what happened and, and why there's a positive right. experience here. And so the, once you're in that cycle of happy client, construction administration leads to happy clients, which leads to you know easier to get construction administration uh, as part of your process without having to convince a client every time. And it's, it's absolutely critical to avoid those situations, to avoid that, that finger pointing where if you're involved on a regular basis, like you said, the, the contractor comes to you first, you can head off those issues before they become issues, so there's no reason to finger point because now the, solve, the, the issue's been solved. It, there's so many reasons for being uh, involved during construction. And I think the most important reason for being involved in, um, in construction is because that's the point where your client sees your project come to life. That's the point where your client become, it starts getting excited about it. And if you're not there to receive the accolades that you deserve, someone else is going to receive those accolades and it's not going to be you. Um, right. That's and, right. And so by you being involved, it's a reminder that this thing that's being becoming a part of their life in such a positive way, it's because of the person that that's there every week during construction uh, who helped them through the first three three quarters of the process. Yeah, no, you're you're right on the nose with that. I mean, you know, I think that it's e people easily kind of forget what you do did throughout the process and i think that there's a sense that because people are spending money on plans that they're going to be perfect right and they expect them to be perfect right. and you know as much as i try throughout the design process to say over and over again no set of plans is perfect and we there are going to be things that are going to be um you know are going to have to change during construction uh, it, it's, it's easy to forget, you know, it's, it's something that, um, you know, again, you, you, you spend, you spend money on, let me, let's say you buy a car, right? You expect it to be perfect. It's gotta be perfect. It came off the production line and you spent a bunch of money for it and you're angry if things are not working properly. Right. Um, but with a, with a custom design, everything is new every single time. And, you know, there's no chance to perfect a set of plans by building it and then going back and building, you know, designing the exact same thing again with a few tweaks. Every design is unique and therefore uh, there are going to be little things that, that need to be um, looked at during construction. Yeah. And it comes right back to managing expectations again. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that that I think is probably the hardest expectation to manage is is what they paid for is not perfect right. and right. Um, will and can never be. Yeah. Yeah. But when you manage when you set that expectation that this is going to happen and there's going to be uh, and I always tell my clients because we've we always do um, additions and alterations. There's going to be a massive unforeseen expectation. There's something is yes. going to happen. There's going to be unforeseen condition in your house. It's part of the process. Don't worry. We have it covered because we're expecting that unexpected. Once they understand that it's going to happen and you're there to manage that process through, when it happens, all you have to do is remind them of that conversation that you had and their stress level you know, notches down 10x because they're reminded that this is part of the process. And if you don't manage that process, 
and that happens, it is literally the end of the world for them. This is so true. I mean, telling telling them that they're going to be um, yes, and I, I I say I say this a lot. I say um, the only thing that I can uh, the only thing to expect uh, during the course of construction is the unexpected. I right. said so the only the only guarantee during construction is the fact that there will be surprises yeah. uh, and everything else, everything else is up in the air. Um, and I, you know, I tell them that during the design process too, you know, we work in a lot of very difficult local cities and I, I say, look, we're, we, we, we know the code backwards and forwards, but you know, we're still dealing with people at the end of the day and you know, they can have different interpretations and different ways of looking at things and not, you know, even, even getting something permitted isn't guaranteed. You know, it's, it's construction and the design process that, that has to be hedged. Yeah. You know, this is, this is such an interesting conversation. Before we wrap up, Joe, I wanted to ask you the one question that I ask everyone. What is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? You know, I would say it's the little things. I mean, look, I, I think um, it's very easy to become complacent in your business, right? It's very easy to say, oh, yeah, things are pretty good. But what I find is that every time I say to myself, things are things are good, things are easy, things are moving forward, that's when everything falls apart, right? I, I find that that always being on your toes is kind of the thing that uh, I would say helps move things forward. Always trying to tweak and change and, you know, change that formula and, and rethink things. Are, am I, am I designing the right way? Am I, am I uh, presenting the right way? Am I talking to my clients or emailing the right way? Always questioning, I think is probably the biggest thing that helps continually move us forward into the into the uh, the next step and and helps us kind of uh, um, build a better uh, architectural practice over time so I'd say keeping keeping on your toes and uh, and look always looking for that next thing to take care of a very good advice his name is Joseph Spearer it's s-p-i-e-r-e-r and you can find all kinds of information. You can go see his architecture and, and how he does it at his website at calarchitect.com, C-A-L, as in California, calarchitect.com. Joseph, this has really been an interesting conversation. I love talking about the practice of architecture and seeing how other architects are doing it successfully. So uh, thank you very much for joining me today and sharing your knowledge here at Entree Architect Podcast. Mark, thank you so much. It was wonderful. I appreciate it. This is episode 327. If you'd like to access the show notes or share this episode with a friend, please share this episode with a friend. That's how we're growing here at Entree Architect and, and uh, getting the word out about what we're doing here for small firm architects. EntreeArchitect.com slash episode 327. That's the link to share. And for the show notes, EntreeArchitect.com slash episode 327. And if you are a regular listener here at Entree Architect, you may also be a fan of some of my friends making podcasts. You may have heard them. ArcaSpeak with Evan Troxel and Cormac Phelan. Inside the Firm with Lance Psycho and Alex Gore. And Spaces Podcast with my friend and our creative director here at Gable Media, 
Demetrius Lynch. If you like these, this show, if you like Entree Architect, you should go subscribe to their shows as well. I think you're going to like what you hear over there. All three of those podcasts, Arcaspeak Podcast, Inside the Firm Podcast, and Spaces Podcast. And with that, I have some really, really exciting news for you. Let me start with a little bit of background. Last year at the AIA conference in 2019, not this past year, 2020, that was canceled. 2019 in Las Vegas, I teamed up with all of these shows to record a marathon length live podcast from the RCAT booth under the big red A. If you've been to the RCAT uh, booth, if you've been to the AIA Expo, on the Expo floor, there is a big red A. And under that big red A, you will find our friends at RCAT, RCAT.com. Those, they have been a longtime supporter of not only Entree Architect, but many of the shows that I just mentioned. So what we did, if you're a longtime listener, you probably remember listening to a series of episodes here at Entree Architect Podcast where we did that long, um, we did it as a series of podcasts. It was a three hour, I think, session we recorded. We invited a bunch of guests on and we just continued talking and talking. It was so much fun. Well, we're doing it again. RCAST 2020. RCAST 2020 is coming to you live from the expo floor. Well, not really. The expo was canceled. So we're going virtual and we're doing it on Zoom. So join us for RCAST 2020, a live podcast presentation presented by ArcaSpeak Podcast, Inside the Firm Podcast, Spaces Podcast, and yes, here, Entree Architect Podcast. It's going to be on Friday, June 19th. Friday, June 19th, put that in your calendar, starting at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. 3 p.m. Eastern Time, Friday, June 19th. Write it in your calendar right now. You cannot miss this. Streaming live from Arcast. Uh, nope, streaming live from Arcast2020.com. Streaming live from Arcast2020.com. That's all you need to do. Don't miss it. Visit Arcast2020.com on Friday, June 19th at 3 p.m. and join Evan, Cormac, Lance, Alex, Demetrius, and me as we invite several guests from all over the profession to join us and talk about the state of the architecture profession. It's just a casual conversation with a bunch of people uh, who care about the profession and like the profession and want the profession to grow, uh, have some, have some uh, influence in the profession, where we've been, where we are today, where we're going in the future. It's free. There's no registration required. So save the date, Friday, June 19th, 2020, RCAST 2020, starting, starting at 3 p.m. Eastern time at RCAST2020.com. Be there. Love, learn, and share what you know. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris 
owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There's a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.